Well, good morning and welcome again to Fort Caroline. Good morning if you're watching uh, online. Thanks for joining with us online. I know uh, many people choose to watch online before coming to a gathering in person, so glad you're able to join us that way. would love to meet you in person at a service uh, in the future. If you have your Bible, flip over to the book of Mark, chapter 1. Mark, chapter 1. Um, my wife had a birthday this weekend. Um, I will not tell you how old she is uh, because I'm a smart man. And uh, I, I will tell you, though, that I am um, approaching 40 at an alarming rate. Um, and uh, birthdays, they, they make you think about how old you are and what's ahead and, and that kind of stuff. And uh, experts say that between the ages of 40 and 60 are when midlife crises typically happen, which I don't know if you can call someone who has a midlife crisis at 60 a midlife crisis just by virtue of math. That's not really the halfway point. You're kind of two-thirds of the way there, um, but that's fine. But somewhere in those age ranges, kind of 40 to 50, maybe 60, uh, people have a midlife crisis. I wonder if you've had a midlife crisis. By a show of hands, anybody want to, no, nobody wants to own up to it? The, the signs are, are pretty common, right? We, it's, a, it's, a, it's a muscle car, it's, it's a Harley, uh, you know, it's, it's all of a sudden they take up some crazy hobby, like they're going to hike some ludicrous mountain, or they're going to do the whole Appalachian Trail, and you're like, you don't even, like, you can't even get up and go get more potato chips during the football game, and you're going to do the, what is what's happening, right? Uh, it, but this, these, these crises happen, and, and we all kind of know why, right? We, we get the, how they take place, and maybe, uh, you know, we joke about the midlife crisis, but the, the root causes are maybe a little more serious. Uh, we can go through life, and we can do all the things, right? All the things that are required of us. We go to college, then we find a spouse, we get married, we have kids, uh, we work hard at our career, uh, and, and we kind of do the things that life requires of us. Uh, but what happens for folks who do experience a midlife crisis oftentimes is they go through the motions of those things and they find them hollow or empty after a period of time. Maybe they've kind of gone as far as they can go in their career and there isn't really another hill to take. You know, things with the kids are kind of stable. Perhaps they are, have moved out of the house or are about to move out of the house and things are kind of normal kid-wise. You know, financially, you're in a good place. You're not rich, but you're not poor and you're kind of comfortable in that department. And you kind of look around your life and go, this was it. I'm, I'm almost to the end or halfway to the end or two-thirds of the way to the end, and this is it. This is all I had to show for it. This is all that I was meant to accomplish in life. And so they go, no, that can't be it. And so they're like, I'm going to be a biker now, a biker gang. And they get a leather jacket, and they go, you know, riding Harleys. And okay, that's fine. Because then you don't know they're at Daytona in the spring, and it's just the whole new life. A lot of the, the root causes of this crisis, if you will, are, are a crisis of purpose. They're a crisis of, of, of what is life about? What am I about? What is the reason I exist? And I, I have noticed as a pastor the same thing can happen sometimes in our faith as well. We can have kind of a midlife crisis in our faith. We go through the motions of, of church and of Bible study and, and the kind of the routine of faith, if you will. And we do that for a period of time. And then we look up, maybe it's five years, 10 years, maybe it's 40 years into your faith. And you look up and you go, this was it. Didn't, didn't quite have the power that I thought it was going to have. Didn't quite have the pizzazz that I expected or, or maybe that the preacher promised me it would have. Why does my faith feel stale? And I think in our text this morning, we're going to find the answer and solution to that as well. I think 
The answer is a sense of purpose as well in our faith. If all our faith is about is going through the motions and doing some religious things, it's not surprising that we find it stale. But if there is a purpose for us in our faith, all of a sudden now we find energy and enthusiasm and joy for our faith. And so this morning in our text, we're going to see Jesus' purpose in coming, and I think we'll find our own purpose in that as well. So let's read Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 28. If you have your Bible, you can follow along with me. If not, the words will be behind me on the screen. We're going to work through verses 14 through 28 of the Gospel of Mark. It reads this way. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Verse 21, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned amongst themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this picture of Jesus this morning. I pray that you would help us to see him clearly. Do you see our Savior born in the flesh, who walked and lived among us? Would you help us to understand why he came in the first place? And then, Lord, would you then help us to model our life around him? We pray also, Lord, for our students as they are up at retreat this weekend, Lord, that you would help them, too, to see Jesus clearly as they gather this morning. Father, would you bless the reading of your word, the hearing of your word, and help us not just to be hearers of your word, but doers of it also, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to see three things. This this text breaks down into three sections. Your Bible, it may already have them broken out this way, but you see first this kind of beginning of Jesus' ministry, this proclamation of what he's about, this announcement about his message. And then you see him call his first disciples. And then we're going to see Jesus do some things with an amount of authority that people have never seen before. And so that's going to be the structure this morning as we see Jesus' purpose and methods for ministry through these three little sections. And the first one is an announcement. Verses 14 and 15 say, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. He said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus' whole ministry, the start of Jesus' ministry, the cornerstone of what Jesus comes to do is to make an announcement, is to make a proclamation. Jesus' ministry is above all a message. 
Jesus came to do some awesome things. We see him heal a man of an unclean spirit. Here we're going to see all sorts of healings and miracles and walking on water. He's going to teach a lot of things. But above all else that Jesus came to do, he came to proclaim a message. And his message is pretty simple. It's the gospel, he calls it, which uh, if you've been around here for a little while, you know that word gospel means good news. It's, it's an announcement. The gospel is an announcement. And he, he calls it kind of this, this announcement of the kingdom. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. What is this gospel exactly? What does this announcement mean? The best definition I've heard for the kingdom, the kingdom of God in Scripture, is life with God under the rule of God. Okay? What does it mean to be in God's kingdom, to be a part of God's kingdom? It means living life with God under the rule of God. So God is here and God is in charge. We live God's way with God. That's what it means to be in the kingdom. And you see this throughout Scripture. And Jesus says, hey, believe the gospel, particularly the gospel of the kingdom. This is what he's talking about. He's saying, hey, there was a time when everything was perfect. If you flip all the way back to the beginning of your Bible, the first few chapters of Genesis, we see this garden scene. And we see, what do we see in that garden scene? We see the first humans living life with God under the rule of God, right? They have fellowship with God, face-to-face relationship with God. They are in his presence. And they also have boundaries and rules and structure that God has put in place for them to live under. This is what the kingdom looks like. The Garden of Eden is a picture of the kingdom of God. But what happens, if you know the story, the people of early history, Adam and Eve, they didn't want to live under God's rule. They didn't necessarily say we don't want God's presence, but they said we don't want God's rules. And so Eve is deceived and Adam is deceived and they eat of the fruit of the tree and they break God's rules. As a result, they lose God's presence. See, there's a connection between the two. You can't have God's presence without having God's ruling and reigning over your life. And so what happens then is what we call the fall. Sin enters the world, everything goes haywire. And much of the rest of the Bible is the story of God correcting that problem. It's God creating a people for himself and and, and creating a temple structure where they can enter into his presence under very particular and certain conditions in, in which he might rule and reign over them. But it doesn't work very well. Typically, humans, uh, we're not good at following God's rules. I don't know if you've noticed that in your life. And so people try, and the people of Israel try and try and try to live how God calls them to live, and they fail over and over and over again, and it becomes abundantly clear that if God doesn't do something, we're all doomed. And so the Bible's story turns then to the story of redemption, which is the, what the New Testament brings about. That's the, the, ch- the chapter turn when you move from Old Testament to New Testament. Now we're beginning the story of God's redemption. God shows up in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, and he teaches us how the kingdom works. He lives the way God's supposed to live, under God's rule and reign, and he brings his presence with us, doesn't he? And he shows us what kingdom living looks like, what it is supposed to be like. And then after living for 33 years perfectly, he's hung on a cross and he dies. But that's not the end of the story, luckily. That's the kind of the the conflict in any good story, right? What happens? Three days later, he gets up from the grave and he walks out of that grave alive, ushering in the final chapter, the restoration. You see, God is moving the world, moving his people, moving us back to the Garden of Eden. Only it's going to be the Garden of Eden on steroids. It's going to be awesome. 
And the Bible ends just the same way it begins, with the people of God living life with God in his presence under the rule and reign of God. Only this time, things don't go haywire. There's no sin. There's no death. There's no illness. There's no disobedience. There's no strife. There's no anger. There's no hurt. It's just perfect fellowship, life with God in his kingdom forever. And so when Jesus says, hey, repent and believe the gospel, repent and believe this good news, that's the good news, that Jesus has made a way for us to undo what we've done by our rebellion and refusal to live under God's rule. See, this gospel, it is not good advice. It's not a multi-step path to a better life. The gospel is an announcement. It's an announcement that there's no penance to pay, but simply an invitation has been extended by God to us. Pastor Tim Keller, he puts it this way, talking about the gospel. He says this. He says, the essence of other religions is advice. Christianity is essentially news. Other religions say, this is what you have to do in order to connect to God forever. And this is how you have to live in order to earn your way to God. But the gospel says, this is what has been done in history. This is how Jesus lived and died to earn the way to God for you. Christianity is completely different. It's joyful news. This news calls for a response, and Jesus says that response is twofold. He says, repent and believe, right? So repent means to to turn from one thing and to another thing. It's to do an about face, to do a, a 180, to turn from our way of doing things, from our sin, from our rules, from our uh, way of living, from trying to find joy in anything other than God. It's turning from placing our hope in anything besides the Lord. It's turning from those things. And then it's turning to this announcement that Jesus provides all those things for us. And so he says, hey, turn from this way and go instead this way and believe this message of the gospel. Have you ever noticed that when we try to do things our way, we try to create heaven on earth, the kingdom on earth in our own lives, that it never quite works out, does it? Have you ever noticed when you try to make things awesome in your life your way, it never quite satisfies? Perhaps you're after joy. Have you been after joy? Some, some, some people find joy in, in uh, substances or alcohol, right? How does alcohol work? It gives you that. The Bible says that wine makes the heart glad. It, it provides that for a brief time. And then it fades. And a lot of times it includes a bunch of mistakes. And then you need it again the next day if you want to feel that feeling again. It's short-lived. A lot of people are looking for peace, safety, and security. Money's a great place to try to find that, we think. And so we're going to try to collect all that we can, earn as much as we can, save as much as we can. If I can stockpile enough, I'll be at peace. You know what I found about money? It's never enough, is it? Anybody in here got enough money? You're like, I'm good. Don't give me any more. Nobody. Why? It's never quite enough to truly put us at rest. Anybody looking to be fulfilled in this life? We turn to success for that sometimes, don't we? We'll work hard at our career. We'll climb the corporate ladder, if you will. And we'll get to the end of it. Have you ever looked, some of you guys that are maybe at the end of your career, you look back on your career, have you any any regret in there? You look back and go, what do I accomplish? I made a lot of money for my boss. What did I get out of it? I got some good relationships maybe at work. They gave me a gold watch when I retired. That's about it. 
There's kind of that hole, that midlife crisis we were talking about earlier. It comes from this sometimes. Some of you guys want to be sure that the future is good. You want to place your hope in the future. And so you guys are planners. Any planners out there? Organized, structure? Like, yeah, it's great. They ever work out perfectly? No, very rarely. Very rarely. And yet in the kingdom of God, this kingdom proclamation that Jesus is making, it, the plans do work out. You do find fulfillment. You do find hope. You do find peace. You do find joy. Isaiah the prophet in chapter 55, he's talking to the people of Israel about the promised land, but he's also foreshadowing this ultimate kingdom of God. And listen to what he says. He says, come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. What's the kingdom of God like? It's a place where those deepest desires of your heart that we spend our lives chasing after to satisfy finally get satisfied. And Jesus says, I am the path to that kingdom. What's the gospel? It's that Jesus has made a way for us into his kingdom where we find all that our hearts desire. And he's done it through his cross in our place. That's good news, isn't it, church? Following Jesus, though, it's not just a, an announcement of good news. It is good news, but there's also an assignment that comes with it. That's the next thing I want you to see here, verses 16 through 20. Jesus calls his first disciples to follow him. He says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, I saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting their nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus says to them, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So we see that Jesus comes proclaiming a message, but he also calls a group of followers to help him proclaim that message and spread that message. What do we notice about this call, how he calls these disciples? I think the first thing that's worth noticing is Jesus comes looking for them. Jesus comes looking for them. They're not seeking him out. They're not chasing him down. Jesus is looking for them. It's very common, and in, in that day, rabbis weren't an unusual thing, and rabbis having disciples and followers was very normal in this period in Jewish history. But the way it usually works is that a disciple would come chase down a rabbi. He'd find a rabbi that he respected, that he looked up to, and say, man, I, I want to follow you. Can I, can I follow you? And the rabbi would kind of size him up. Does this guy have the charisma that we need? Is he smart enough to do the study? You know, is he going to be able to keep up? Is he going to be a good representation of me? Does he measure up? And if the person did measure up, they'd say, yes, you can come follow me. But if they weren't quite good enough, they'd say, no, I don't think you're a good fit for me. Go find another rabbi to follow. Not so with Jesus. He comes and finds these fishermen, and he says, hey, you, you four, come follow me. No entrance exam, no, no, no test on their Torah knowledge, no public speaking test to see if they're going to be a good representation of Jesus. He says, no, you come follow me. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 30 teaches us that in our salvation, Jesus does the same thing for us. He comes looking for us. He calls us to himself with no prerequisite, no work required to clean ourselves up or tidy our lives up before he'll accept us. He says, I want you just as you are right now. Jesus, I want to tell you this morning, based on the authority of God's word, he is pursuing you. He loves you just the way you are. He's not waiting on you to get your act together, to fix your life, to clean things up. He wants you right now, and he's after you. Notice also there's no, there's no, uh, there's no test required, right? I mentioned this earlier. There's no, there's no amount of knowledge. A lot of people are like, well, I'm not sure if I want to commit to this Jesus guy. I don't know enough about him. I'm not sure I understand the Bible good enough. I don't know if I can. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Come, and I'll teach you along the way. The only thing that you need to know to follow Jesus is that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. That's it. That's the prerequisite. Notice also that there's a cost to following Jesus. These men, they left their family and their careers to follow Jesus. Fishing in the Sea of Galilee was actually a relatively lucrative career. I don't, the text doesn't say that these men were rich, but history tells us that uh, the fishermen did well in this region. These are small business owners, if you will, running the family business together. And Jesus says, hey, I want you to leave that. I want you to leave that source of income. I want you to leave your father and your mother, and I want you to come with me. There's a cost to following Jesus. There's always a cost to following Jesus. It might be your family. It might be your job. It might be your freedom. Everyone who decides to follow Jesus must reckon with that cost. Jesus told uh, another person in Luke chapter 14 to count the cost before he decided to follow him. When you understand the gospel rightly, it becomes an easy decision. You see the incomparably glorious Jesus, fishing nets for your career, or even family who you may love, they seem to grow smaller in your eyes. True disciples who really understand who Jesus is will be willing to give up everything and follow him. Lastly, I want you to notice, though, there's an assignment as well. There's an assignment for these disciples. Uh, the call to follow Jesus, this text shows us, is also the call to make disciples. He says, come, follow me. What does he say next? Come follow me, and we'll do some great Bible studies together. Is that what he says? He said, come follow me, and we're going to do some community service projects. Come follow me, and we're going to make a lot of friends here at church. It's going to be awesome. This is going to be a 12-person small group, and we're going to have the blast. Best bean dip you've ever had. No. What does he say? Come follow me, and what? I will make you become fishers of men. I got a mission for you. Come follow me. Following Jesus means you have a mission. We just read moments ago that Jesus came to proclaim a message. And if we're going to be Christians, that word Christians just means little Christ. You know that? Christian just means little Christ. And we've got to imitate Jesus and his mission. We too are meant to proclaim this message of the gospel of the kingdom. I want to tell you, church, mission and ministry, they're not reserved for advanced Christians. There's no such thing as that. There's not a varsity team and a JV team, and you've got to kind of work up to get into living on mission. No. The call to follow Jesus is the call to make disciples. And I would also say, and this may step on your toes, but you can be mad at the Lord and not me. I would also say, if you are not engaged in the mission of God in a meaningful way, you should question whether or not you're really a disciple. 
If the call to follow Jesus is a call to be on mission with Jesus, and you're not on mission with Jesus, it stands to reason that you may not actually be a disciple. You may just be going through the motions. Jesus said, hey, there's going to be people when we get to the kingdom, when we get to heaven, they go, hey, why don't I get to come in? And he goes, because you were faking it. And I would encourage you this morning in the most loving and pastoral way I possibly can to examine your own heart. And ask yourself the question, am I actively engaged in the mission of God? Am I serving in a ministry? Am I teaching in some way? Am I leading a small group? Am I, am I sharing my faith with, with people around me? Am I praying for those who are lost? Am I, am I doing anything at all to help advance the mission forward? And if you look back at your life over the next three, or the past three months, six months, 12 months, 10 years, and you go, not really, no. The Bible says you should take inventory because you may be in grave danger. Church, if the gospel is true, think about this, if the gospel is really true, Jesus really did pay the price for our sins. He really did rise again from the dead. He really is going to usher in a kingdom where we get to live in perfect fellowship with him forever into eternity future. If that's all really true, how can we not tell someone about it? So how do we respond to this fact that the call to follow Jesus is a call to make disciples? How do we respond to that? If your response this morning is, well, I better get to work, you're missing my point. You're missing my point. If your response is, I'm not really doing anything for the Lord, my encouragement to you is not to go do things for the Lord. My encouragement for you is to look again at Jesus because you may have missed him. Because you see, when we look at Jesus and we see what he offers, what he gives us, what he does for us, his incomparable grace and mercy towards us, we can't help but tell people about it. We can't help but speak. We can't help but get involved. We can't help but want to join into the mission. And so the call is not to do more work for Jesus. The call is to fall more in love with Jesus so that the work flows out of our lives naturally. The response is not to say, well, I better get to work. The response is to ask yourself, is this Jesus worth telling others about? And see what the answer may be. College football season is over. Um, so that means my football illustrations will probably go down. So one more. Um, I, I learned a lesson years ago. I'm a Florida State fan. I'm sorry if that offends you. Um, uh, it's probably been, I guess, been 10 years ago. Um, I had a buddy that I knew, and he told me he was a diehard FSU fan. He was hardcore. He was serious about it. And I was like, man, that's great. We were living in Kentucky, so those were hard to find. And so there was a big game uh, coming up, and so I invited him over to watch the game um, with me. And I quickly found out that he wasn't as diehard of an FSU fan as he said he was, right? He... he he, this is a guy, and if you know football, you'll understand if you don't, just hang with me for a second, okay? He, this is a guy who, who kept getting mad at the team. They're like, they keep just running right into the guys. Why don't they go around him, right? I'm like, well, you've clearly never watched a football game. Okay, yes, here we are. He asked me, who the, what's the name of the coach for FSU now? It's like, oh boy, okay, here we go. This guy doesn't know what's going on. And I tell you, it was the most excruciating game to watch. He was so annoying. If you're listening to this sermon, sir, I'm sorry. 
I made a rule that day. I never watch important games with people I haven't properly vetted their football knowledge. I give them a little written test. It's about 10 questions. You need to know what the triple option is. You need to know what the veer is. You need to know about coverages. And then we can hang out together. What was so frustrating to me that day was not that he didn't know football. Many of you don't know football, and I love you dearly, right? What was frustrating is that his actions didn't match up to his words. He said, I'm a diehard FSU fan, and he clearly knew nothing about the game. Many of us as believers say, I'm committed to Jesus. I'm a passionate follower of Jesus, and yet our actions betray us. Not involved in any way, shape, or form in moving the mission forward, and yet we say, oh yeah, I'm all in on this Jesus thing. I want to encourage you, church. Let's not live these duplicitous lives where our actions don't align with our words. If we really are followers of Jesus, let's live like followers of Jesus live, which is on mission for him. Last thing I will say this morning is how are we going to pull this off? How do we do this? On what basis do we do this ministry, right? So God has given every one of us an assignment, and I don't know what your ministry assignment is. That's between you and the Lord. I'm happy to navigate that with you and work through it with you. Some, some people are, have more people-related gifts, and so maybe that means you're on the greeting team. I need about a half a dozen people to serve at that first-time guest tent out there on a rotation, okay? So if you're people-oriented and can handle details, that's probably a, a place you can serve. Maybe you want to teach kids, or maybe you want to lead a small group. I don't know what you want to do. I'm going to serve behind the scenes. We need some more guys to help with the lawn crew that, that maintains the, the grass out here. It's a part of the mission and ministry of this church and that kind of stuff. Certainly would encourage you to tell your friends and neighbors about Jesus and fight folks to church, those types of things. I don't know what God's calling you to do. You do. But whatever it is, I would encourage you to do something because of what Jesus has done for you. But how do we do this, right? On what basis, on what authority, where's the power come from for this, right? Look at this last section, verses 21 to 28. I'm not going to read all of it just for the sake of time, but basically two things happen here. Jesus walks into the synagogue and he begins, he begins teaching. He begins teaching the scriptures to these people, and it's unlike anything they've ever heard. They're going, this guy has authority. And then someone with a demon walks into the room and he casts the demon out of him just like that, and the demon goes, okay, I'm out. The Holy One of God says so, I'm getting out of here. And the whole room is just awestruck. They can't believe it. It's like, this guy really does have an authority like nothing we've ever seen. This word that's used here for authority, it has the same root as the word author does. Where does Jesus' authority come from? It comes from the fact that he is the author of this world, of this universe, and every person in here, he is the creator of it, and so he gets to write the story. He gets control over what happens. And so this means for us, church, that what Jesus says goes, doesn't it? It means if Jesus says that if you put your faith in him for salvation, you will be saved. It's true because Jesus has the authority to say it's true. Jesus says that he's going to return to establish his kingdom on earth, and we can trust that word because Jesus has the authority to say so. Jesus says he's going to give us victory over the sin struggles in our lives. We can believe that's true because he says it's true. And Jesus says he's going to be with us when we minister, when we serve, when we speak in his name, doesn't he? He says he's going to give us the words that when we're telling people about him, he's going to give us the words to say. He's going to be with us in those moments. Here's the good news. When we step out on mission for Jesus, we do so with his authority. 
We're not saying this is true because I say so. We're saying this is true because the creator of the universe says so, and he has sent me to you to tell you. When we step out on faith, in faith, on mission for Jesus, we're forced, aren't we, to rely on the Spirit of God? It's scary. I mean, I'm here admonishing you and encouraging you guys to step out on mission for Jesus, but I'm not naive to the fact that it's scary. It's nerve-wracking to do something like that for the Lord, to speak on his behalf, to tell other people about him. It's nerve-wracking to walk up those stairs every Sunday for me and stand right here, okay? There's no way around it. It's, it takes faith. It takes trust. But to be honest with you, that's where some of the fun of it is. There's a sense which God has promised that all real ministry happens because the Spirit works through us. And it's a lot of fun when you get to see and feel that happen. You get to see the Holy Spirit working through you as you step out in faith. If you've never felt the power of the Spirit working through you to accomplish His purposes, let me tell you, it's the best drug there is out there. As you see God do what He says He's going to do through you, and the whole time you know you have no business doing this. You know you have no business accomplishing what the Lord's allowing you to accomplish. And yet he does it. Not because you're awesome. Actually, because you're not awesome. And he wants to show the world that he is. He does it through us. I wonder this morning as we close, do you lack power in your faith? Has your faith gone stale? Are you going through the motions? Has it become routine and trite and irrelevant? Perhaps if you've gotten bored with Christianity, it's certainly possible. You're here just out of routine because this is what you do, but you're bored with this thing. I wonder if the reason is because the power of Christianity, the real secret sauce of this faith, is the Holy Spirit of God working through us, and you don't ever give him a chance to work through you. So it doesn't feel all that powerful after all. There's a book that was released this year. It's called The Great De-Churching, and I think every pastor in America read it when it came out. But it's a book that has done like this 20-year study to analyze people who were regular church, churchgoers who have left, and it's, it's sought to analyze why. Statistically, through tons of surveys, why did they let, leave? People had a lot of theories. They basically, it broke down, though, into four primary groups of people who left for four different reasons. And everybody expected kind of a uh, the... the deconstruction movement. If you're not familiar with that, we don't have time to get into it today, but everybody expected that to be the big reason why. They found of the four reasons people left the church, that was the lowest one. You know what the primary reason the people left church? It's because they moved and they forgot to go find a new one. Or because COVID happened and they just never really felt like going back. Or because they had a life event that caused them to miss for a period of time and they just never went back. They weren't angry at some pastor. There wasn't some scandal that happened. There wasn't, they didn't deconstruct their faith because of new things they've learned on, on the internet. They, they just didn't care enough to go find a church. What is that? Where does that come from? That's a Christianity and a faith that is stale. That has no power. And I wonder if it's because we're not allowing the Spirit to work through us and show us how it really works. Following Jesus means Living on mission for him and living on mission for him requires the Spirit of God to work through us. If we're not doing those things, what's the point? Yesterday, I signed my son up for soccer. It's this kind of go-to sport. Season will start, I think, next month. My son's nine, and soccer season's around. He gets into soccer. He'll practice in the backyard. He will occasionally even watch games with me on TV and kind of study how people are functioning. 
He'll go to his team's practices and learn the skills, do the drills, the dribbling, the kicking, and passing, and that kind of work on it. But if I send my son to soccer practice and I have him kick around in the backyard the soccer ball all the time and I have him study professional soccer players to see how the game's played and he does that week after week and month after month but he never actually plays a soccer game. He just sits at the bench the whole time. He never gets in the game. Is he going to still like soccer? No. He may go through the motions because he wants to please his dad or he doesn't want to be a quitter but if he spends the whole season three or four months and he never gets to play the game he's going to quit. He's going to walk away because it's not all it's cracked up to be. But when he gets in the game, the rush, the joy of the competition, of the passing, of the camaraderie, of the event of soccer, man, that's what keeps him coming back. He's played soccer almost every year since he was two and a half years old. Why? Because he gets in the game. Church, I wonder if some of us aren't kind of over our faith because we've never gotten in the game. We talk about it, we do our Bible study, we listen to this guy up here preach at you all the time. We may even read our Bibles at home, but we don't engage in the mission of God in any meaningful way. So we don't experience the power of God in any meaningful way, and it goes stale. Church, let's get in the game this year. Let's live on mission for the Lord. I don't know what that looks like for you, that's between you and God, but I promise you he has an assignment for you. I'm happy to help you figure out what it is. And I'm willing to bet the farm that if you step out in faith on mission for the Lord, he'll meet you there, he'll empower you there, and he'll use you there, and he'll keep you there. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that you are ushering in a new kingdom, one that we have no business being a part of, and yet you allow us to come in anyways because you're a good God. Your word tells us that you are the door. You are the entrance into that kingdom, into a life with God under the rule of God, and that's what all of our hearts are actually seeking. But God, following you doesn't just mean following you by identifying with you or by studying you or by talking about you. Lord, it means living on mission with you. And so help Fort Caroline to be a church on mission for you. What you've called us to do. It's where we'll find joy and purpose and satisfaction, and it's where you get glory the most as sinners turn from their sin and put their faith in you as you work through this body. And so would you do that, we pray, by your Spirit, in Christ's name. Amen.